The subject this morning is a heart for missions. And if you'll open your Bible or keep it open there for a few moments, in 1 Chronicles chapter number 16, what we have is David here, the great psalmist of Israel, writing uh, this passage of Scripture as they prepare to open up the ark, or they've just brought the ark into the newly built temple. And the whole nation is in the mood to praise the Lord. A great, great event has occurred here. And as David writes here, we see in his vision a heart for missions. A heart for missions. You see it in every page here. Now understand, this is the Old Testament. This is before Christ has even come. We typically think of missions as beginning with the New Testament. But here we see that even far back, deep into the Old Testament, missions is a vital part of the program of God for the world. Look in verse 23, if you will, please. And it refers to all of the earth singing the praise of God. Well, that's not going to happen without missionaries. If you look in verse 24, he talks about declaring his glory among the heathen. What do we mean by that word heathen? I know people use it as a sort of a slang term sometimes. Heathen, the definition is people who do not know the true God. People who worship false gods, who practice false religions. And so in verse 24, David says he looks forward to the time when even the heathen will declare the glory of God or it will be declared among them. You'll also note at the end of verse 24 the phrase all nations. All nations implying mission work. Go to verse 25 and 6. He makes a, an exclusive statement for the Christian faith. All other gods are idols. All other gods are idols, meaning there's a great need for missionary proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Verse 30, you'll see again the phrase, all the earth is to fear the Lord. All the world, uh, we, we talk about going to all the world and to every creature here. We refer to ourselves as an Acts chapter 2 church. And by that we mean we model ourselves after the church in Acts 2. And we over and over, over and over in the pulpit, I'll say to you something like this. Our goal is to reach all the world and every creature. Our vision is as big as the, vi as the whole world. We're not limited in scope or in vision. We need big thinkers at the Florence Baptist Temple who think in terms of the universe, the whole world, getting the gospel out to the whole world. But in our big thinking, we also want to think, we want to think as small as every individual. We don't want to overlook one single creature, the poorest, the richest, the most educated, the most illiterate. No matter who they are, it's every creature. All the world is the bigness and the largeness of our vision Every creature means that we cannot overlook a single person. Look in verse 31. Let men say from all the nations. There again, David sees the day in his vision 
when people from every single nation will praise the Lord and say, the Lord reigns. You think very many people today say the Lord is reigning in Saudi Arabia where they do not even allow a Bible legally where you could be locked up in jail for owning a Bible? Do you think in Kazakhstan or one of those places over there that's so foreign to us that there are people talking about the Lord God reigneth this morning? I tell you no. That hasn't happened yet. But it's the vision of God. A heart for missions. Our text reveals today here in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 that God's heart is for missions. God's heart is for missions. Do you ever think about God and what He's interested in? Or is it just all about us? Do we think of the cause of Christ being bigger than the Florence Baptist Temple or bigger than the United States? I tell you this morning, the heart of God is for worldwide evangelism, for worldwide missions. You know, you only have to know that first verse you probably ever learned to know that. John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved who? The world. We quote that verse oblivious to its missionary focus. God loved all the world. There's not a person, not a country that Almighty God is not interested in. May He forgive us for our provincialism, for our little thinking, for our selfishness, for our turning inward and not caring anything about those people that are perishing and have never heard one time of Jesus Christ. You know, all the way in the Old Testament, you see missionary endeavor, missionary work. I don't have time to tell you about all of them, but I'll just share one of them with you. You remember the story of Jonah? And what God called Jonah? Jonah, I want you to go over to Nineveh and I want you to preach the gospel. Jonah was a bigot. Jonah was racially prejudiced. Jonah said, I hate those Assyrians. It would be good enough for them if they were to die and go to hell. They're the cruelest people on earth. They skin their captives when they take over a nation. They, they ought to get what they deserve. God said, no, Jonah, you don't understand. I love Assyrians. I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and I want you to preach to them of the mercy and kindness of God. And Jonah did. Finally, after a little ride on a, on a foam blubber mattress, and after he arrived in Nineveh, he began to preach the gospel. And what was the consequence? The whole city repented. They'd never heard it before. The first missionary you could arguably say was Jonah, who took the gospel to a people who hated him and he hated them. And God supernaturally worked. And the whole city repented of their sins. Our text reveals God has a heart, a world heart. All the nations, every creature, let all of the earth say. Number two, I would note, want you to note with me, the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself was for missions. The heart of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself was a missionary heart. 
Christ founded the New Testament church, I believe, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. He said, I will build my church. And he had gathered around him 12 men, and I believe they were the stones. They were the church. He organized them into a church. They did every function as those 12 men that a church is to do. They had a treasurer. He was a crook, but he was a treasurer. They had a treasurer. They had organization. They took the gospel. They baptized. Tell me what a church does that those 12 men weren't doing. And so the church was founded there by the Lord Jesus Christ. After he founded the church, he ministered among the people there, doing great works and miracles and telling them of his plan for them, discipling and training those 12 men. And then he died for our sins. And between the resurrection, the day he arose from the dead, and his ascension 40 days later, when he went back to be with the Father in heaven, five different times he gave the Great Commission. The Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to who? Every creature. Mark chapter 16. In Matthew, he said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. And then I want you to train them, teach them everything that I've taught you in these three and a half years. And then after that, I want you to send them out that they would do likewise. And he repeated that again in Luke. And he repeated that again in another form in John, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And he repeated it again in the book of Acts. Five times he gave this wonderful thing that we call the Great Commission. I want you to understand something today, ladies and gentlemen, because Baptist churches have never bought into the Great Commission on the whole. Oh, they'll give you lip service. They'll nod assent to it. The truth is that we don't really believe the Great Commission. America spends more on dog food than we do on getting the gospel around the world today. So I don't know that we've really ever bought the Great Commission at any kind of deep level. In Baptist churches, even the ones like this one, you see, the Great Commission is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's not something to pray about. It is a command. It is from the commander-in-chief, which means the Lord. If he's the Lord of my life, he has a right to command my life. If he's not the Lord, then I get to do what I want to do. But he sets the boundaries, and he's the one who said, I want the churches, as long as time endures to the end of the age, I want you to go. And I want you to give the gospel. And so, he called people to do that. And our job here is to be involved in missions. It's to heed the call and go, as some people down here have done. Or it is to stay and pray and give and finance mission work around the world, as we're attempting to do here as a church. But every single one of us are to be involved in this great worldwide plan of world evangelism. And so the missionaries always say to us, they've said it so often, I don't know if we hear it. They say to us, will you pray for me? How often do we pray for missionaries? How many of them do we say, you know what? God has laid that family on my heart. And by His, by His power, 
I will pray for those people every day. I won't hear from them often. I won't know what's going on in their lives. But terrible opposition could be focused upon them. Somebody needs to be holding up their arms in prayer. I will pick out four or five families out of all these nations where we have missionaries. And I will pray for those people every day. I will pray that God will use them and give them power and anoint them and fill them with the Spirit and give them souls for their labor. And every single one of us can be involved in that, can we not? And so the text reveals that God's heart is permissions. And the Lord Jesus Christ's whole life was about missions. In fact, David Livingstone said it so well. God had one son, and he made him a missionary. He came to this old sin-cursed earth, of course. Now, as I read my New Testament, the New Testament is to have a mission. The New Testament church is to have a missionary heart. The missionary heart of the New Testament church. You know what happened? The Lord gave the commission. In fact, I want you to turn to the book of Acts in your Bible, to the first chapter, and I want you to see the Acts version, the fifth and last versions of the Great Commission here, Acts chapter 1, if you will. And I want you to note something about that particular verse. It's very familiar. Some of you could even quote it, no doubt. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem. It starts there. Our Jerusalem is Florence. And in all Judea. And that would probably be the southeast. And then in Samaria, maybe that's the United States even. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Notice there's two words there I want you to note, even circle in your Bible. Both in. Both in. In other words, it's to be simultaneous. We're not to try to get everybody in Florence saved before we go to Judea and Samaria. We're not trying to get everybody in America saved before we go to the rest of the world. It's simultaneous. We're to be doing it all simultaneously, both in. Now, the Lord gave that commission, and everybody loved their church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 through 7. They loved their church so much, nobody ever wanted to leave. And they didn't obey that commission to go to all the world and take the gospel to them. And so, look with me in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said, okay, I'm going to have to stir your nest a little bit down there. Every church needs stirring up every now and then. We tried to stir this one up a couple weeks ago. Stir the nest. Get people out of their complacency. And these people were enjoying the church. Man, they were hearing great preaching. James and Paul and Peter. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was consenting unto his death one of the deacons. And at that time, a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And so the Lord allowed persecution to scatter that church. That persecution, by the way, was God's plan. He permitted that. He allowed the persecution to come so they would get out of Dodge. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's where he told them to go, wasn't it? 
And so he scattered them. He, he said, look, you're just sitting on the gospel. You're very selfish with the gospel. Now I want you to spread out. And so he sent an incentive in the form of some persecution, and they spread out. Chapter 9, Paul, who was leading this persecution, the apostle Paul, ended up getting saved. The leader of the forces against them was converted to Christ, and he subsequently became uh, a missionary himself. Thirteen years now go by, and Christians are sprinkling out all over the Middle East. And in 13 years later, over at Antioch, where a church had been established, they sent out their first two missionaries. That's in Acts chapter 13. And the two missionaries were who? Paul, who had been the leader of the opposition, the persecution, and Barnabas, a man who was a great Christian sidekick to the Apostle Paul. They began to go out. And they went out across what the Bible calls Asia Minor, the Middle East. They went out across the Roman Empire. Now listen to me. They began a cycle, a never-ending cycle that is still going on today. And that is what? They got saved in a local church. They were sent out by that local church. Just like three of these families came to know the Lord, grew up here in this church, and now we've sent them out to three different places in the world. We finance them. We pray for them. We help them in every way that we can. They go to wherever, Hong Kong, Korea, the Philippines, and they do what? They plant churches. They develop their converts. They send them out to plant what? More local churches. And the cycle just goes on and on and on and on. The local church is at the heart of God's plan for missionary endeavor. They were so successful with that plan that in 300 years from the time they started, that little group of 120 people had grown to a majority in the entire Roman Empire. In 315 years later, by the year 315, actually 15, 15 years after they became the majority, Constantine became the emperor and claimed to become converted to Jesus Christ because he knew that the majority of the country was now claiming to be Christians. Now, whether they were Christians in the fullest sense, I don't know, but they, were, they would identify themselves, at least, as Christians at that point in time. And so Christianity was moving like a prairie fire across the entire world at that point in time. And that model is our pattern today, that the local church sends out our young men and our young women, we pray for them, we support them, they go and establish other local churches, they train their converts who then enter the ministry and they go out across the world and they plant more churches by winning people to Christ and reaching people for the Lord. And that we call ourselves an Acts chapter 2 church, that's what we mean by that when it comes to our mission work. Things were exploding for Christianity. And then about 400 A.D., the Roman Empire began to crumble. By the way, it crumbled for the same reasons America is falling apart right now. I'm going to preach a sermon to you not too far in the distant future and show you those parallels. 
What went on in Washington, D.C. this week was the same type thing that tore the Roman Empire apart 1,500 or 1,800 years ago. In 400 A.D., it began to crumble. By 500 A.D., within 100 years, the empire was gone. It had completely dissolved. And by 500, the world entered the medieval period. We call it the Dark Ages. And it was dark. Oh, man, was it dark. We don't mean literally dark. The sun still shines. But dark spiritually. Dark intellectually. And for a thousand years, that darkness enshrouded this entire planet. Education ceased. Ignorance prevailed. Missionary activity was rare. The great doctrines that had built the New Testament church that are contained in the Scripture were forgotten and ignored. In fact, for on the main, people were so ignorant they couldn't even read the Scripture. It was their ignorance that brought about the darkness of the Dark Ages. The church sold indulgences, if you, can, if you could uh, even imagine that. You could go and pay at the church, and they would give you a license to sin. You could go and say, you know, I think I want to have a little affair. I need an indulgence for adultery. And you would be sold that permission to go sin, or whatever your pet sin might have been. And the way of salvation was so distorted, men were working, doing, trying to do good works to offset their sins for salvation. And it was like that for a thousand years. There were very few missionaries sent to the world. During that time, it got darker and darker and darker. There was a few examples. In Spain, there was a nobleman, wealthy man, a member of the royal family, a professor at the university, his name was Ramon Law in the 13th century. It would be in the 1200s. And Professor Law was living, a, he said, I quote him, a luxurious and pleasure-centered life. He met Christ. He said, I've got to take the gospel to these Muslims. They don't know a thing in the world about Jesus Christ. Professor Ramon Law ended up standing in front of a wall and being stoned because he had taken the gospel to people. There were a few of them, but very, very few of them throughout that thousand years. There was no missionary work much. And then the Reformation came, and there was a rediscovery of the Bible doctrine of salvation is by grace through faith. And once people began to understand true salvation again, it had been the Bible all along, but it was the dark ages. Men's minds had been darkened. And once they began to grasp true salvation, then they understood the missionary imperative. Because, ladies and gentlemen, you can't believe in true salvation by grace through faith and keep it to yourself very long. You can't believe in the inerrancy of the Scriptures 
and be opposed to missionary work. Missions work is on about every page of the Bible when you begin to look deeply for it, isn't it? It's at the heart of the New Testament church. And then the 1700s came, the 18th century. And it's been called the greatest century of missionary endeavor as those great truths were rediscovered. Those early missionaries began to go out into the pagan world. The pagan world then was so dark after a thousand years. Abortion was routinely practiced. We think abortion is some new practice. No. Abortion has been around since ancient times. And in some cultures it was as prevalent or more prevalent than it even is today in our society. They practiced infanticide. If they didn't want the baby or they didn't feel they could care for it, if the baby had a handicap, they killed the baby. Infanticide. Killing of the infant. They practiced abandonment. When people got old and helpless, they carried them out to the woods and the wilderness and left them there to be devoured by animals. There was no sanctity of life. They practiced euthanasia. Slavery abounded. African tribes would go and have a war with their rival tribe, black and black. The winner would take captives of all the others in the tribe, and then they would bind them in chains and take them to the coast, and they would sell them to the white slave traders. And all around the world, slavery abounded. The Arabs at that time were slave traders, perhaps the most so of anybody in the world. It was a horrible time. There was tribal genocide where if one tribe could, they would kill every member of their opposing tribes and think nothing of it. Disease swept through whole civilizations and wiped them out. There were no medicine. There was no antibiotics. We don't realize how horrible, how difficult, how dark the world was in the 17th century. Missionaries began to go out. They encountered cannibalism. In India, sati, the practice of if a man died, they burned his body on a funeral pyre and piled the wood up, and as the body burned, they put his wife on it alive so she could go into the next world to serve him there. This was the world of the 17th century. And then the missionaries began to go. They circled the globe. They crossed the seas. They took the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their their message was grace, that you don't deserve to be saved, but God loves you because of His own character, and He wants to save you, and He cares about you so much that He gave His only begotten Son. They took the message of mercy. They took the message of forgiveness. It's wrong to hold hatred and arbor ill will in your heart against other people. They took that message across the world. They took the message of mercy. They took the message, by the way, of the sanctity of human life, that every single human being is made in the image of God and deserves life. They took that message. And in their wake, they left behind churches. And they left behind schools because they had to train people to read, to study the Bible and understand the faith. And they left behind hospitals where they could help the sick. And he helped heal people just as Jesus had set in order the model of healing for the people. The first of those missionaries 
came from the Western world, was a man that we all ought to know a lot about. Read his story. Oh, how stirring it would be for you. His name is William Carey. He was a cobbler, which meant he made and repaired people's shoes. You didn't go to the store then. You went to a cobbler, and he would make you a pair of shoes. He was a cobbler in England, a little quiet village. He took a piece of leather, and he drew a map of the world on it because he had read verses like I read to you in 1 Chronicles 16. All the nations are to praise God, and he said they're not doing it. He drew a crude map of the world up there, and he would pray for a country every day. God, will you send somebody, send the gospel to them, somehow get the message to them so the people in that country can have a chance to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he prayed, nobody responded except him. And so Kerry said, I'll go. He wrote a sermon. It was printed as a pamphlet and distributed widely through the Baptist of England. Here's the title. If I preached a sermon like this, you wouldn't come. An inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. <laughs> Boy, we don't preach... We don't preach sermons with titles that long anymore, do we? <laughs> you would think that's going to last eight hours. And so he preached that sermon and distributed that pamphlet. You know what the people's response was? An old elder in his Baptist church came up and said, Young man, if God wants to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help. William Carey said, no, I will go. And of all places in the world, he went to dark, dark, dark India. His theme was attempt great things for God and then expect great things from God. And he did that. Listen to this. One man fully committed to the Lord translated the Bible into six languages. Translated the New Testament into 24 languages and dialects. Founded the Simrampur College, which today still exists and has 2,500 students. Established the first Baptist church in India. Today, been renamed. It's called the Cary Baptist Church. He advocated for reforms. He advocated against sati, that practice of widow burning against the infanticide of tossing babies into the Ganges River as an offering to the gods. He advocated against child prostitution. At about the same time in America, God was calling a man named Adoniram Judson, also a Baptist. He went to Burma. I wish I could tell you about him. David Livingstone, who was a little Scottish boy working in a cotton mill, and he was so thirsty for knowledge, he would prop his books up on his machine and read them as he, as he worked. And he became a physician. And then he became a missionary. And he said, Jesus Christ was a missionary, and Jesus Christ was a healer. I will be a missionary doctor. And Livingstone went to Africa. At that time, unknown. It didn't even appear on maps, just a crude outline. Nobody had ever mapped the interior of Africa. And this man went there and by himself, he mapped the interior. 
He took trips up and down all those major rivers. He discovered Victoria Falls, the greatest falls in the world. And he left behind in Africa a legacy of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thousands of others then began to follow. Robert Morrison, Hudson Taylor, Robert Moffat, Mary Slessor, Lottie Moon, James Frazier, and thousands more. Lastly and quickly, the missionary heart of the Florence Baptist Temple. From our days back in the old theater building, we've always been involved in missions heavily. Our first missionary was a man named David Harrell. And uh, we took him on when we didn't have, we were meeting in that old building and we said, we'll send you $25 a month. He was our first missionary. Then we took on a man named Damon Woods, who was a missionary in the Philippine Islands. And then subsequently more missionaries and more missionaries. I remember in the theater building, a member said to me, Pastor, we shouldn't be giving money to these people. We don't even have a building for ourselves. We need to take care of our own first. Whoa, 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 whoa. Confrontation coming. No, 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 no. Where'd you get that? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We began in Jerusalem and both in Jerusalem. We don't wait until we've got every need we have fulfilled before we take care of the missionaries. No, 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 no. And we've always sought to follow that Acts 1-8 model. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. We do it. We don't do it as much as we'd like, but we still do it. We have a presence in Florence. This summer, thank God, you knocked on 26,000 doors. You took the gospel to them in printed form. And we go to Samaria. Tens of thousands of people watch our services on television. All across Southern North Carolina and Eastern and Mid-South mid Carolina. And we go to Samaria. We, are helping, we have a church planter coming who will speak tomorrow night to us. Who's beginning a new church in Dayton, Ohio of all places. But I've met him and felt impressed to invite him to our conference. And then the uttermost parts of the earth. We have members of this church in Australia in Costa Rica, in China, in Korea, in the Philippines, in Sierra Leone, and in Mexico. Last year, you gave almost a half million dollars, $480,000, to the cause of missions around the world. God bless you for that church. Over here, you have these flags. And over here, we had the young people march them in. We had to buy some more this past week or two. When you look at those flags, that means we have a missionary in every one of those countries representing the Florence Baptist Temple. I want you to get a hold of that because that ought to make you, that ought to encourage you. In every one of those countries where you see a flag, there's a missionary who gets a monthly support check from the Florence Baptist Temple. Their names are carried in our literature. We pray for them on a regular basis. That's our effort to carry out the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8. A word of caution. 
History shows that churches die when they turn inward. When their focus becomes each other, the death knell is sounding in that church. Because they forget and they ignore their purpose. Missions, those flags up there remind us we don't exist for our comfort, for our convenience, for our own fellowship, for our own enjoyment. We exist to have compassion on this lost world. We exist because hell is a real place. We exist because God loves every single person on this planet today. And that must be our thrust, our motivation, whether it's sending missionaries across the world, taking the gospel to the doorsteps of our neighbors here in Florence, operating a Christian school to train young people in a biblical worldview, grading the Sunday school to make it effective for outreach, having preaching services that focus upon teaching people that the Bible can be trusted and it's reliable. And all the other things we do, the sports ministry, everything that we're involved in here, ladies and gentlemen, it's all about one thing. It has one purpose. and That is to get the gospel to all the world and to every creature. Don't ever forget that. Don't ignore it. Don't get confused about it. That's the reason we exist. I'm a couple of minutes late, but I want to close and tell you a story because I didn't have it in my notes. Froyland and Mary back there met a young man who, he's a Spanish gentleman. He's 25 years old. He came to this country. And they met him and began to work with him. And a few weeks ago, they led him to Christ. He was coming forward this morning or next week to profess his faith in Christ and to be baptized. He worked at Walmart. They sent him to Charleston for training. He didn't even have a car. He was walking and he got hit with a car. This morning, he's in the hospital at MUSC, severely brain damaged. His life hangs in the balance. Whether he'll live or die, we don't even know. But last week, he sat right over there, and the week before. And for the first time in his life, he understood the gospel. That's what we're about, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we're about. Praise God. If the Lord takes him, it's in his hands. If he allows him to stay, that's in his hands. But aren't you glad somebody told him? Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.